Hi, this is Chris Montez, recording of Let's Dance Some More, See You, Call Me. And uh, you're listening to Robert Miller on Follow Your Dream. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 191 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Brian Hyland, one of the great pop stars of the early 60s. His first big hit was Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini, the novelty song that went to number one on the charts in 1960. And he followed this up with another gigantic hit, Sealed With a Kiss, in 1962. He appeared on American Bandstand and the Jackie Gleason Show, just to name a few. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all of my musician guests, we are going to do a song fest where we're going to play some of Brian's best songs and we're going to talk about them and have some fun. And nobody else does this in podcasts. And I have a featured song in this episode, as I do in all of my episodes. And I try to make it relate somehow to my guest or the subject matter. In this instance, I've chosen the song The Podners from the album East Side Sessions by my band Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose this song? Well, a bit like Itsy Bitsy, my song is kind of a novelty song too. I call it the first and only cowboy jazz song. And we set the video of the song to a 1968 Spaghetti Western. How about that? So Brian Hyland, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you. Thank you. You know, you are thought of as a 60s artist, but you may not even know this, but you are as contemporary now as they come. Why am I saying this? Well, my wife and I were watching the series The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, all right, on Amazon Prime. And all of a sudden, we're watching one of the episodes, and in the background is Itsy Bitsy. <laughs> you hit the charts again. <laughs> That's fantastic. Did you know about that? Somebody uh, mentioned that to me uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yes. <laughs> uh, hey, listen, there's nobody else from that era that's, that's as current as you are right now, okay? You're at the top. <laughs> well, it's great. Great being at the top. You bet. I mean, that was such a fun song back then. And I, I read something as I was uh, getting ready for this interview. You're a Queens boy, aren't you? You were born in Queens. Uh, yes, I was born in uh, in uh, Woodhaven, actually. That's where I grew up. Okay. You probably left there when at what age? I guess I, uh, I think I was probably 20, 21, something right around there. Okay. So you basically spent your youth in Queens. Okay. Yes, I did. See, that's why I like you so much, because I'm a Queens boy as well, except I grew up a little bit further east in Queens. But we, we had some pretty good artists in Queens. Yes. Yes, we did. <laughs> I know. Okay. Now, I know that you recorded Itsy Bitsy when you were 16 years old. I mean, that's crazy. Tell us the backstory on that. How did that happen? Well, 
the uh, the way that I got to record that song, it was my second record, and I had one before that, and it was called Rosemary. And then they were looking around for, they had a song that they were going to put out uh, as the next single. And then at the last minute, they backed off, and I got a phone call, and they said, come on over. We found this song, and we're really excited about it. And I went over uh, to Cap Records, and they played it, the demo for me. All right, but you're 16. How did you even get signed by a label at that point? <laughs> it's a long story, but I'll try to, you know. Give us the edited version. Okay. Well, I, had a, I was in a doo-wop group, and um, we made a demo record, and we took it around, and uh, someone saw us and said, you ought to go over to Sammy Kay's office. They're looking for singers over there. We went over there. Was that in the Brill building or something? Yes. And we played in the demo and uh, they listened to it and they said, well, we're not really looking for groups, but Brian, we like the way that you sing. And will you be interested in going solo? And uh, like in that moment, I became a solo artist. So you're, you're what, like 15 or so at that time? I was 15, right at that point, yes. Okay. Your, your mother and father let you go on the subway into New York City. Yeah, it was, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> you go up in the Brill building, you play this thing, and all of a sudden, you get signed. Isn't that nutty? It was. And uh, at the time, it seemed normal. And that was always my dream. Like, when I, when I, I would uh, go to church, and they didn't have church in a regular place. It was like in an auditorium. And I'd sit there and watch the, uh, and look down at the stage, and I thought, wow. I could I could be a singer. I maybe I could you know it, it was just in my head, and uh, and watching TV shows like uh, Ozzy and Harriet with Ricky Nelson and uh, and then seeing Elvis, other people like that, and in my neighborhood also was all the doo-wop groups. You know, in in Queens, it was the, it was a big thing. Which which were your favorite doo-wop groups? Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers. Uh, they were number one, and. Um, I guess the platters, I like the platters. And later on, I got to know and actually work with a lot of the other guys. And uh, I always, that was my first love. Beyond Elvis. <laughs> well, you know, you're right. Doo-wop was kind of a New York thing, okay? Between Queens and the Bronx, that's where I always thought of doo-wop. The Dell Vikings and groups like that, that's fabulous. And yeah. the harmonies were terrific, right? Yeah, that was, it was... It was a kind of a magical thing when you would start singing and then all of a sudden harmony would come in. And it was, wow, that's really, that sounds nice. <laughs> I agree with that. Okay, so you're up at the Brill Building. They like you better than they like the band, okay, or the group. And they decide they want to sign you, okay? And what happened after that? Well, for a while uh, after that, I was going back and forth over there to uh, work with their arranger. And uh, he was showing me a lot of different songs and they had a publishing company and people would bring songs up there to, to, to get them published. It was in the Brill building. And I would uh, listen and I, I did some couple of demos. Uh, I can't really remember what the songs were and uh, did this one demo a song called Rosemary was sent out all over the country to get a to get a, a hit on it, somebody to record it. But when they brought it up to Cap Records, Cap Records, the people there, AR people, they said, Well, we like this song, but who's the, on the 
who's on the demo? Who's that singing? And they said, well, that's Brian Hyland. We, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's the office boy, which I actually was too. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was it. Um, they, they signed me and that's how I got that first contract. Rosemary, Rosemary, please take my By stars above, I vow right now you have my love. So you're in the Brill Building. Did you get to meet any of the other, you know, super artists and writers that used to be in the Brill Building? You know, Carol King, Jerry Coffin, etc. Did you meet any of these folks? Actually, no, I, I never met uh, the only the songwriter that I remember meeting uh, that was kind of a nice guy, too, was uh, Fred Neal. And uh, he wrote Candyman, Roy Orbison song. And he also wrote Everybody's Talking at Me. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot. And uh, he was uh, he was like a struggling songwriter at the time. So many people that were in the Brill Building. And for anybody who doesn't know, Brill Building is this building in Manhattan where that was like the center of the music business in the 60s, okay? All the different labels and the songwriters had their offices there. And, you know, it's legendary. People could go around and just hear one after another or from one office to the other. Must have been an exciting place to be an office boy, huh? It was. And uh, I would go, they would give me parcels. Okay, take this over to such and such. And I'd go over and drop it off. And uh, I would run into people, uh, you know, just uh, other songwriters, you know, songwriters, not other songwriters. And, uh, and I would, you know, it was, it was kind of like I was in that world all of a sudden. Wow. Okay, so you're 16 years old. They come to you and they say, we've got this little novelty song called Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini. You can't forget right. that name, by the way. Right. And, uh, why did they come to you? Why not somebody else? I, I don't know. I, I never asked them that question. And I just went up, they played the song for me on the demo. And they said, okay, the demo was a couple of girls singing it. And they said, oh, you're going to sing this part. Then you're going to do this part with the girls background singers. Then there's a spoken part. And then that's it. And we, they, they set up the session very quickly, did it probably about a week later at uh, Regent Sound Studios. And it was a deal where everybody was in the studio at the same time. And I could look to my right and I could see the three girls singing the background singers. And we had, really good musicians and they knocked it out in probably they did it was a three-hour session they knocked uh, that out and another couple of songs and uh, it just I think the writers also were there too Paul Vance and Lee Pockers you know in a sense it's kind of funny because they got this song it's a novelty song and they're saying to themselves probably okay who do we get to sing this and somebody says wait a minute the office boy we'll get him to sing this song okay and you turned it into a gigantic hit She was afraid that's 
wore. Tell the people what she wore. It was an itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini that she wore for the first time. Yeah, it was the, it was just, it just took off, and as soon as it got to the radio stations, they played it right away. Did they promote you after that? Were you no longer the Office Boy? No, I wasn't. <laughs> no, <laughs> that was my Office Boy. That was the end of it. Okay. And, uh, no, I'll tell you something that uh, my wife Kathleen reminded me of this, and I, I I remember like there's a certain point in your like as a musical career. I remember this certain point where I would always take the subway to go over to Manhattan for meetings or when I first started out. And after that song came out and after I'd been on TV a few times, I was on the subway and then I got, I guess school let out and all these teenagers got on and they spotted me and you got recognized. Huh? Couldn't take the subway anymore. Isn't that something? All right, so let's talk about the aftermath. You did the song, it becomes a number one. It was a monster hit at the time. And then you, you what, you were on Dick Clark's show and tell us about what happened afterwards. Well, at, at that time you would, uh, you would uh, do the, uh, uh, go down to Philadelphia to the uh, bandstand show, American Bandstand, the afternoon show. And then I was lucky enough to be on the Saturday night show, which I think almost ended. There was like two or three episodes after I did mine, which was in August. And uh, that was that was really something. In fact, the clip is still up on YouTube. People can watch that. How did you like South America? Were the people nice? Fantastic, yeah. It's, uh, you play for a real big crowd. And one night I was in, in Buenos Aires and I played for 70,000 people. We are delighted you turned up for our uh, 70 or 80 or 100, whatever we have today. Would you join us at the autograph table? Yeah, sure. We'll see you there. Thank you, Brian. Have a good trip. And uh, it was great, uh, you know, being in that world all of a sudden. And it just, uh, it was overwhelming, really. Did Dick Clark treat you well? Yes, he did. He was very... I always noticed that about Dick Clark, that he treated everybody equally in the billing, except for the very headliner of the show. Everybody else got equal billing on all those posters that he had. I see. Who else was on the show that you were on? I remember it clearly. It was uh, Johnny Burnett and uh, it was uh, Handyman. Uh, the original Handyman. Huh? Jimmy Jones, was it? I'll have to look it up as well. And, um, and Bobby Rydell. Bobby Rydell was on it. That's so cool. And he debuted his version of Volari on that show. I thought, wow, <laughs> unbelievable. And they played it real loud in the studio. And in the, in the, at the, it was a soundstage, an ABC soundstage. It wasn't a little theater. And they had the kids dancing to the songs. Is that right? No, not, not, not on the Saturday night show, but on the on American Bandstand. Yeah, they, they all danced all okay. the time. So what was the difference on the Saturday night show? Saturday Night Show was more like uh, like the Ed Sullivan show, or it was uh, it would have acts on there, and they would have little uh, sets I and see. skits. I think I saw the Skyliners were dressed up one time as cowboys, <laughs> <laughs> and so he would do that. You know, he had a little production for all the different uh, songs. They didn't make you dress up in a bikini, I hope. 
No, they didn't, but they, <laughs> they, 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 didn't, they didn't like the clothes that I wore to when I went there. So they said, all right, we're going to take you down to uh, Fifth Avenue or Park at something, some store. And they, I, they had uh, these kind of beachcomber pants that, uh, and a, uh, I guess a hoodie kind of uh, shirt. And uh, so they, they wanted, that was like my costume. It was my costume. They wanted a beachy kind of look, huh? Yes, they did. And people still think when I do shows, they think, well, Brian, you're from uh, L.A., right? Right. And just just people just took that for granted. They think you're a beach boy, huh? Yes. I can imagine. (laughs) Hey, everybody. This is your host, Robert Miller. The Shakespeare Concert is the new album by my band, Project Grand Slam. Fifteen of our greatest hits recorded live in the studio, one after another, concert style. No overdubs, no fixes, just as is. The album's been praised by so many famous musicians, including Mark Farner of Grand Funk Railroad, Jim Peterick of the Ides of March, Joey D of Peppermint Twist fame, legendary guitarist Elliot Randall, and celebrated British composer Sarah Class. And the music reviewers have called it perfection, five stars, thrilling, and a masterpiece, among other accolades. You can stream the album on Spotify, Apple, and all the other streaming services. And it's also available the old-fashioned way for purchase as a digital download or CD from the pgsstore.com. I'll even autograph the CD for you. I want to thank you for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the show on whichever podcast platform you use. And if you want the inside scoop on each new episode, just sign up for our weekly email on our website at followyourdreampodcast.com. All right, but let's go to your other big, big hit, which was Sealed with a Kiss, which I thought was such a cool record. Though we gotta say goodbye for the summer, darling, I promise you this, I'll send you all my love every day in a Sealed with a kiss, guess it's gonna be a cold, lonely summer. But I'll feel the emptiness, I'll send you all my dreams every day in a letter. Sealed with a kiss. Tell us a little bit about the backstory there. So well, the kiss was a song that was written by Gary Geld and Peter Udell. They had written a lot of songs up to that point. And the one right before that was called Jeannie Come Lately, and uh, which did pretty good uh, all around the world. Anyway, so Seal with the Kiss, we were coming up for a session and uh, they said, we're going to do Seal with the Kiss. And I was a little familiar with it because I had heard another version of it, which was out a year before. And they played that for me. But they didn't want to do it that way, the the way that they had done it, uh, or the or the way that other record had been recorded. So 
they 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 we had this good great arranger Stan Applebaum, and they worked out this great arrangement. I did the harmony on it myself, and but I did it exactly the way that Gary Geld, who is a writer, the mel the melody writer, he he had an uh, an exact way he wanted me to sing the harmony, and I had to learn actually two songs, two melodies, which actually comes in handy once in a while, and uh, so I. Um, uh, and then they had a good a harmonica player named Blackie Shackner. He was the harmonica player. He was a very famous harmonica player. And we recorded it at Bell Sound Studios and um, did vocal overdubs at another studio and came out and took off. Did you know it was going to be a hit? I had a very good feeling about it. It's very weird because... Uh, when they were doing the mix, they were mixing it, and then, you know they play it over and over and over again. Right. And uh, and somehow, the, when they did that, somebody stepped on the uh, echo button for the guitar intro, and and all of a sudden, this guitar intro with all this echo on it came out, and I list, I everybody's head snapped around, and we said, "That's it." And they left it in, huh? Yeah, they left it in, and that, that really it stood out when you heard that on the on the radio. I love when mistakes like that happen and it makes the song that much better. Yeah, it happens. Yeah, it happens sometimes once in a while. It's funny with uh, certain records when you're doing take after take after take and everybody's, you know, wondering when is it going to end? Then you get a take and it's perfect and everybody looks at each other and they're holding their breath. Then always the producers say one more take. <laughs> but it's always that one before. How many takes did you do of Sealed with a Kiss? What do you think? Well, uh, you know, on the, uh, well, I did a vocal, I sang on the session because you had to do that at the time because of the union. And uh, so then when we did the uh, vocal overdubs, I, it was just like in the afternoon, I probably did maybe uh, 10, 10 times or something like that. It's a good thing you weren't working with uh, Phil Spector because he used to do like a hundred of these things, I think. <laughs> Yes. That would have been awful. Okay, I got to ask you about this. My wife was a big fan, a big fan of the B-side of Sealed with a Kiss called Don't Dilly Dally Sally. Can you do you remember that one? Well, that song tell no, us something you got about that, that. You got that wrong because that was on the B-side of Itsy Bitsy Polka Dot Bikini. Oh, excuse me. It's okay. <laughs> But uh, yeah, that was going to be, they were going with that and then they backed off. And that's how we got Itsy Bitsy Polka Dot Bikini. I see. There, so I know it was a toss up between the two. Is that it? It was, yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what, what made them choose one over the, I mean, there's such completely different songs in a sense. Well, it was uh, different producers, you know, everything was different. See, back in those days, you know, they actually had A-side and B-side 
for singles, right? Because the singles were out on 45 RPM discs. So I guess there was a decision to be made as to which one was going to be the A and which one was going to be the B. Yeah. It was, you know, that became a problem sometimes if you had two songs that were equally listenable and people and the disc jockeys would, you could get split airplay and that would kill it. Right. Because there wouldn't be one that was strong enough. Yeah, I remember the Beatles had a problem with that as well. They put out a couple of things where the A and the B side, you know, everybody loved both of them. And it was it almost it conflicted with one another in a sense. Yes. Like, for instance, the, I think the biggest one ever was Hound Dog and Don't Be Cruel. That was A and B, huh? A and B. I guess Hound Dog won out, but Don't Be Cruel is right at the top. I know. I love it. Okay. Along the way, tell me if I got this right. You work with guys like Leon Russell and Del Shannon. Am I correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. So tell us what it was like working with them. Well, Leon Russell, that was, he was the arranger for Snuff Garrett. And uh, I worked with him in New York first and then in California. And uh, he was like a musical genius. He was a musical genius. And he, uh, he was really easy to work with. He was from Oklahoma. And he, they had Snuff Garrett, who was the producer, had a, a whole uh, slew of uh, musicians that they worked with. And, you know, the wrecking crew. Right. That was, that was really, that was fun. That, and that was my first session, actually, in California. The, uh, when I recorded a song called The Joker Went Wild with them. Once I was a king. I thought, always a king, cause I just captured someone's heart, but may I explain, I treated her mean, and then my kingdom fell apart, I found I couldn't sleep at night. Then working with uh, Dell, I knew Dell from 1961 when we were on a show together. And um, at a certain point, I was out in California, went out there and uh, started writing songs with Dell. And we wrote a couple of songs and wrote a song called Could You Dig It? which was we took it up as an independent production up to uni records and they liked it, put it out and didn't really do much. And then we went back in to record another session. You did a song with him called Gypsy Woman. Am I correct? 
Yes. That was the next session we did. And uh, that was another, it was a million seller. Nice to hear about things like that. I mean, nowadays to get onto the billboard, you know, top lists, whatever they call them now. I mean, it's such a different world than it was back then. Back then, you know, if you had a million seller, it meant you, you sold a million records. Okay. Yeah. Nowadays between uh, streaming and anything else that they count, the number one record on the billboard charts might have, I don't know, 10, 20, 30,000, as opposed to a million or, or more. It's a different world. Yes, it is. Yes. All right. Now, Sealed with a Kiss, I think, came back. You had a separate kind of hit with that in the 70s in the UK. They were doing that in, uh, in the UK right at that time. That, that was in 1975. And... There was a couple of other songs right before Seal with a Kiss, and it had been deleted from their catalog. And uh, they put out uh, a 45 with that's with Seal with a Kiss on one side and Genie Come Lately, which was a really big hit over in England. So and it, it went right up in the charts again. Fantastic. Did you wind up uh, touring, you know, England, the Europe, etc.? I did. In 1963, I was there with Little Eva, both of us. And we, we both headlined a tour and uh, we were, it was really cold. I remember how uh, we were, it was like February and March of 1963. And I actually, we were there right before Chris Montez and Tommy Rowe were there. And uh, they, you know that story. <laughs> I do know that story. And I assume this was pre-Beatles as well. Well, the Beatles, I heard on the radio, you know, I never really heard Love Me Do Much. But when I was there, they always had radios in the room. A lot of the, the hotels didn't have TVs. And uh, I turned on the radio and I heard Please Please Me. Uh -huh. And that was just coming up on the charts. You know, there's a story that uh, originally when John Lennon wrote Please Please Me, he had in mind a Roy Orbison kind of uh, feel to the song. And uh, apparently George Martin changed the whole thing, gave it a, you know, a rock and roll kind of beat to it. Yeah, it was a great, great record. Yeah. And Chris Montez, who's been on the podcast as well, a mutual friend of ours, he told the story about how, you know, he toured, as you said, in, in Europe, the Beatles were the opening act on that tour. But by the time they got to Liverpool, which I guess was at the end of the tour, they became the headliner. Okay. And Chris was very cool about the whole thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's very cool about that. And uh, it was, uh, you know, in, the, in, the, in those days also, you didn't really do a long set. It was like today, you couldn't get away with it today, you know, but they, that's what they did. You're right. I mean, I've, I've read about how some of the acts we go out, they do a couple of songs, you know, 15 minutes, something like that. 
yeah. that would be the act, right? Yes, and uh, it was uh, it was a different world. Totally. Okay, and you went on after you did all the pop stuff. You did some country stuff, didn't you? I did, and uh, I liked country music. I had heard country music uh, on the road, not not necessarily in New York. It wasn't big in Woodhaven, Queens, huh? No, it wasn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just heard it on, you know, when I would travel, I'd turn on the radio and uh, I'd hear uh, Buck Owens, I'd hear Farron Young, all these. And I like the I like the guitar sounds, too, and the way they recorded that. You know, one of the great guitarists uh, of that era on the countryside was Glenn Campbell. OK, he was a big studio musician and a brilliant guitarist. Yeah. Yeah. So that worked out. OK, cool. Tell us, uh, what, what are you doing these days, Brian? Well, uh, I live in uh, up in Connecticut, which isn't far from where you are. And um, I'm, I'm still doing rock and roll shows. I did a cruise just uh, like a month ago, month or two months ago. And uh, rock and roll cruises are very cool. And I do one-nighters. Uh, and that's basically what I'm doing. And writing, writing and I have a little studio here where I am. And um, I got a lot of uh, original, I've been putting out original music. Some, some uh, are uh, my songs that I wrote. And then others, I did some oldies. I just did a recent remake of uh, Come a Little Bit Closer, the song wow. that uh, Jane Americans had. And uh, done some other ones, Alan wow. Toussaint song. I had this one called The Greatest Love and songs of my own also. Fantastic. Well, listen, you got to continue to keep writing and playing because that's how you stay young, right? Definitely. Yes. hundred percent. Yeah. Keep smiling. Keep playing. Yeah. And uh, it was great being on your show. And uh, I, I'm listening to it now all the time. Terrific. Thanks so much. I appreciate you being on. And uh, we're going to listen now to the song that started off uh, the episode. It's my song called The Podners. And I want to thank you so much for being on the show, Brian. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band, at projectgrandslam.com and at the pgsstore.com Let me back up now and tell you how I came to shoot this man We used to be partners on the trail line Town in order to even the score.